Good day, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week we come to you from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, Canada, and we bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago this week. This time around, we're working on July 20th to July 26th, 1970. Our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and their support's been crucial to our research. They allow us to get you all the news from hockey land of the 1970s. We're also sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. The folks at the Breakwall produce outstanding craft beer, many of which are from recipes crafted in the town's first breweries in the late 1800s. They've been updated to the 21st century, and they're wonderful, wonderful beers. They also have some of the best pub food on the planet, and they're slowly getting back to being open to the public after all this coronavirus stuff that's bothered us the last few months. When everything returns to somewhat normal, I'd love to meet any of our fans at the break wall for a beer and a burger. In last week's show, we had a few interesting stories for you. We talked a bit about the Vancouver Canucks, who named their first captain. That was Big Orland Curtainback. And uh, we also talked about how the marketing and ticket sales programs for the Canucks was going. We found out which NHL star, who's used a radically curved blade to his advantage over the past couple seasons, had decided to give up the banana blades and uh, return to a straight blade hockey stick. And we also had a very interesting chat with the great Eddie Shack. This week, as you can imagine, in July of 1970, there wasn't a terrible amount of hockey news to uh, talk about, but we do have some notes that we'll provide for you. Uh, we'll talk a bit about Jerry Seltzer, the fellow from Oakland, California, the roller derby magnet who uh, was bidding against Charlie Finley for the Oakland Seals. He'll talk about how he found the deck was stacked against him right from the start in that competition. Jim Kearney, the Vancouver sports columnist, We'll talk a little bit more about technology in hockey and an interesting concept that was coming around regarding goal judges in 1970. And we have a bit of player news, including some bad news for the Buffalo Sabres. We're also going to have a very interesting chat with a former Maple Leaf goalie and Edmonton Oiler and goalie scout and coach for other teams, Ed Chadwick. So let's get to the news and notes right away. As we said, uh, we'll start off this week with a little bit of news from Jerry Seltzer. Now, if you remember, Jerry Seltzer is the owner. Uh, he runs the International Roller Derby League, very popular in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area. And he was competing against Charles O'Finley uh, in an unsuccessful bid to try and buy the Oakland Seals NHL team. Seltzer felt he was the best man to uh, operate the team in the Oakland area, uh, very, very dedicated to sports in the area, and uh, has quite a bit of resources as well. And he felt that he could run the team better than Charlie Finley could. Well, now, as, as we got a couple weeks after Finley was finally awarded the team, Seltzer admitted 
that he had no chance to win the right to purchase the seals, and uh, it became painfully apparent to him when both he and Finley made their presentations to the National Hockey League Board of Governors uh, back in Montreal early earlier. Uh, here's what Seltzer told Wells Trombley, the fine sports columnist of the San Francisco Examiner. Jerry told Wells that when we uh, went into the room, the Board of Governors sitting around a sitting around a table, and his uh, party had a 100-page brief outlining all their plans for the SEALs, the finances, and how they were going to make the team more than relevant in the Bay Area. Charlie made his presentation a quick 10-minute talk with a one-page brief with maybe a couple of paragraphs on it, Charlie just winging it as he went. But what told Seltzer that he had no chance was during that long presentation he made, Bruce Norris, owner of the Detroit Red Wings, fell asleep. He was basically snoring during Seltzer's presentation, not the least bit concerned about what Seltzer and his group had to say or whether they were even had better ideas than Finley. Didn't care at all. Seltzer says, that's when I knew Charlie was in. We had reported that before any of this started, before the meetings, that Charles O. Finley's big backer was, who else? Bruce Norris of the Detroit Red Wings. Still with the Oakland Seals, Charles O. Finley revealed some of his plans for the team this week and how he was going to market it as well. Now, Team Vice President Bill Torrey, uh, still with the Seals after uh, being kept on by Finley, said that the uh, hockey club would raise ticket prices for the upcoming season. Tory says the ticket prices currently range from $2.50 to $5.50, and Tory says those are the lowest in the NHL. But get this, this is why Bill Tory says the team is raising ticket prices. Not because they need more money. Charlie Finley's got deep pockets. He said that the rest of the league was concerned that the Oakland prices are too low. Finley also revealed some other strategies designed to draw attention to the hockey team in the Bay Area. He said, after saying he was going to consult with uh, teams, that he changed his mind and his teams will wear either white or gold skates. Now, this is coming after declaring that no decision would be made until he consulted with the players. Maybe he talked to a couple, maybe he didn't. We don't know. Charlie just says that's what we're going to do. The Seals were warned against this idea by NHL President Clarence Campbell and a couple of the owners, notably Bruce Norris of the Red Wings. Finley's statement about the skates was met with pure disdain by incumbent coach Freddie Glover, who refused to pose for a picture with a pair of the skates at Finley's first press conference. Glover said, I'm going to dump them out of there. I don't want any part of them. We'll just have to see how this is resolved between the owner and the coach. Another idea belonging to Charlie Finley is to have player names on the backs of the seal sweaters this season. This is another idea that's been shot down by the NHL governor several times. Uh, teams in the Central Professional Hockey League actually used the sweaters on or names on the sweaters back in the mid-60s. Uh, there were a couple of teams that wanted to try it, 
but the NHL governors said they don't want to cut down on program sales, and names on sweaters would do that. Finley doesn't care. He's been told this isn't proper. It's not going to happen. But he's going on with the plan anyway. As far as player acquisitions for the Seals, Finley said he was actively trying to better the team. But uh, one player he will not be trading away will be young defenseman Carl Vadney. Finley said he had the opportunity to spend some time with Vadney, and he really likes a young man. Apparently, some of the time they spent was at a casino in Las Vegas. Charlie said that during his many talks with other teams, he actually had arranged a deal to acquire a very big-name superstar, someone he wouldn't name, but he said he turned the trade down because the team in question requested that any deal would have to include Vadney going the other way. Charlie said that wasn't going to happen. Vadney is the kingpin of the SEALs teams. Bill Torrey, by the way, said that contracts had been sent out to the 20 SEALs players that were protected in the expansion draft. That's 18 skaters and two goalkeepers. None had yet, as of this time, been returned. And yes, there are other teams in the National Hockey League than the Seals, and we're going to talk a little bit about them this week. A Stan Fischler, another one of his special to the Toronto Star missives, reports on a conversation he had with New York Rangers general manager coach Emil the Cat Francis. Francis told Fischler that as far as Ron Stewart, the 38-year-old right winger of the Rangers, is concerned, nothing has changed with regard to his status on the team since the end of the 1969-70 season. You'll remember that Stewart was involved in the circumstances surrounding the death of the great goalkeeper Terry Sachuk, but a New York grand jury cleared Ron of any culpability in Terry's death. Francis had this to say about Stewart. I don't think there's a more dedicated fellow who's ever played hockey. I know he's a valuable member of our hockey club, and I would hope he continue to be that. Another subject that Francis and uh, Fischler apparently discussed was the future of Tim Horton with the Rangers, and according to Fischler, Francis is not terribly enthusiastic about Tim's uh, length of stay with the Rangers. Tim, as you remember, was acquired from the Toronto Maple Leafs in a trade near the trading deadline in March. While there's no direct quote from Francis saying he's going to trade Tim Horton, Fischler says the fact that Emil did say he would never put Horton in the minors indicates that he's listening to offers for the veteran rearguard. Francis is quoted as saying he has no regrets about the deal that brought Horton to New York, saying it was a necessary trade at the time. He is not quoted anywhere as saying he's shopping Horton, and Fischler said that Francis hinted he would consider a trade. I don't know what hinted means. Uh, Somehow I think it means that Stan is, as he usually does, reading between the lines. Now, to be fair to Stan Fischler, it only makes sense that a veteran aging defenseman like Horton might be moved out to make room for some young Ranger defensemen coming up. But the Rangers also lost their best young defenseman in the expansion draft when Alan Hamilton was selected by the new Buffalo Sabres. We'll have to see what happens with Tim Hortons in New York this season and if he does, in fact, get traded. 
If you were with us last week, you'll remember a report we uh, gave you about the plans to erect a giant billboard-sized TV screen at Empire Stadium in Vancouver to provide instant replays and advertising material to fans of Canadian Football League games. Jim Kearney, uh, the Vancouver sports writer, very well-respected sports writer, uh, kind of translated the uh, football idea for the screen to hockey and we even had uh, quotes from Lloyd Gilmore the NHL referee about how a giant screen showing replays would affect uh, officiating in the NHL well this week Jim Kearney had a little bit more technology news for us and and this one is really pretty interesting Kearney reports that he is uh, news of a plan were by hockey goal judges, those fellows who sit behind the goal in each end and turn on the red light. Goal judges will be rendered redundant by a new invention that he uh, talked about. The idea is for, it's almost like some kind of an electric eye, which can measure to one one thousandth of an inch and can determine exactly when or even if a puck has completely crossed the goal line in a game. Here's how it works. Uh, And it's not really an electric eye as such. Uh, The device is is put in a uh, metal casing of some sort and buried in the ice directly below the goal line. And what it does is it sets up a magnetic shield or field, if you will, stretching between the two goalposts right up to the crossbar. Some sort of element, as yet undescribed, would be embedded in the hockey puck and it would trigger the magnetic mechanism when the disc completely crosses through the magnetic field. This would trigger an automatic response from the goal light, signifying a score. The inventor of this system is a fellow by the name of Ole Stark of Mission City, B.C., and he took a one-third scale model of the device to display its effectiveness to Kearney and NHL referee Lloyd Gilmore and uh, Vancouver Canucks executive Walter Babe Pratt was on hand as well. They showed the device off and it set off the goal light every time without fail. In an effort to show just how efficient this little device was, Stark put on a first baseman's baseball mitt and put a puck inside the glove so it couldn't be seen. He waved it across the goal line several times, various uh, pieces of the mitt going into the net, and each time that the part of the mitt where the puck was located went over the line, the goal light was activated. Again, it never missed once. Now, the NHL referee Lloyd Gilmore was very impressed with the performance of the system. And he had this had, he pretty, actually had a pretty good uh, comment about this. Lloyd said, This could have saved me some embarrassment one night in Toronto last season. I disallowed a goal by Stan Makita because my eyes told me it didn't go over the goal line. Later on the videotape, It showed I was wrong. Last week, Lloyd had said you have to make a decision and stand by it. I think maybe he's coming around a bit to the idea that the main thing in hockey games for officials is to get it right, and this technology would do just that. Stark has three backers for the project, 
and they figure they have all invested about $4,500 each in the device. Now, Canucks General Manager Bud Poyle wants the system installed in Pacific Coliseum, and he actually plans in using it in exhibition games this fall. Now, we don't have any word on whether the National Hockey League has given any approval for this stunt, but we would think that uh, someone would have to say it's okay to try this as well. Another thing the NHL, by the way, is thinking of trying in exhibition games is that free face-off rule, and I wonder how that'll go. People still think that Bobby Hull could kill somebody if he's allowed to tee up one of his blasts. Detroit Red Wings general manager Sid Abel has told Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press that he anticipates no labor strife with the National Hockey League Players Association in the near future. Abel said that the Players Union and the league have had several talks over the summer and the players have not once in these sessions ever mentioned the possibility of a strike. Abel did say that one concession the players did insist upon was that teams mail out the 1970-71 contracts to each of their players by July 15th and they, they did all that. Now players were supposed to respond one way or another by returning the contracts to the team, mailing them by August 1st. Abel said that in the case of his Red Wings, all this did was create more secretarial work for the office staff, since negotiations are impossible, he says, to be carried out by mail. Sid says that all the Red Wing players returned their contracts all unsigned by this week, so in-person negotiations are going to have to take place anyway. Here are this week's notes from around the hockey world. The Detroit Red Wings sold three players to the American Hockey League Baltimore Clippers this week, and the Baltimore Papers were up. treating these three players like the second coming. There's not a lot of hockey news in Baltimore during the summer. So the fact that the Baltimore Sun gave this a three-column story, it actually shows you there is some hockey uh, interest in that city. The three players going to Baltimore are forwards Johnny Kniff and Renal LeClaire and defenseman Jim Niekamp. The National Hockey League Players Association is running a series of hockey schools around the United States this summer, and they have appointed former National Hockey League goaltender Don Simmons to be in charge of the schools. Don will be setting up the programs and uh, arranging for instructors at 17 hockey camps uh, for the union in a number of locations around the country. This is a really good idea by the association. Gets their names out there, gets the players out there in front of their fans, and provides some quality hockey instruction for a lot of young boys around the United States. Pat Kelly is a minor league hockey coach with the Clinton Comets of the Eastern Hockey League, and this season he was named the Minor League Coach of the Year by the Hockey News, a very esteemed publication. The Comets are a farm team of the Minnesota North Stars, and Minnesota North Stars general manager Ren Blair announced that he has uh, convinced Kelly to agree to a two-year contract to continue coaching 
the Clinton comments. I think Pat Kelly may at some point have a chance to advance in the hockey world, maybe even get up to coach an NHL team someday. Former Detroit Red Wings goalkeeper Roger Crozier is expected to be the number one man between the pipes for the expansion Buffalo Sabres this season. However, the Sabres received some bad news this week. Roger ended up in a Detroit hospital with yet another attack of pancreatitis. Roger has been suffering from uh, this debilitating disease for the last couple of years. And he said uh, to Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press that this latest attack is nothing new, nothing he hasn't experienced before. Roger explains that usually adjustments to his diet relieve the pain that he suffers when he has these attacks. Roger says he fully expects to be at 100% by the time the Sabres open their training camp in Peterborough in mid-September. We have a little bit of American Hockey League news this week for you as well. It looks like a few games this season will be played by AHL teams in cities other than those where the franchises are located. The Quebec Aces will schedule about a half a dozen games in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. The Aces, of course, are the Flyers' number one farm team. And the Montreal Voyagers will play about a dozen midweek games in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The talk is that if enough interest is shown in these games, the two cities, Philadelphia and Halifax, could be in line for American Hockey League franchises as early as the 1971-72 season. Here's some news that's made some Chicago Blackhawk fans very unhappy if uh, letters to the sports editor are any indication. After 22 years in broadcasting, Lloyd Pettit says he is retiring. Lloyd was the voice of the Chicago Blackhawks of the National Hockey League. He broadcast many other sports as well, was a very good baseball announcer, and he says he's turning off his mic for the last time this year. Many Blackhawk fans have expressed uh, disappointment and they're giving a lot of suggestions as to who the Blackhawks should bring on as their play-by-play announcer. Most of the letters to the sports editor that we saw in the Chicago Tribune this week just feels that the Blackhawks can go and snatch Dan Kelly from the St. Louis Blues to go to work in Chicago. That ain't going to happen. Former National Hockey League player Nick McCoskey has been rehired by uh, the Winnipeg Jets Junior A team in the Manitoba Junior Hockey League, and he is going to be a coach for another season. McCoskey has been making news this summer in another area. He is an outstanding golfer and has uh, finished up in the money in several tournaments around the country this summer. Philadelphia Flyers big right winger Gary Dornhofer underwent surgery this week to remove cartilage from behind his right knee. Now Gary says this was a relatively minor procedure. These days in 1970, anytime they're cutting your knee open, I wouldn't think it's minor. But Gary says it wasn't a real bad operation and he's going to be fit as a fiddle as training camp opens in September as well. Little bit of news from the Minnesota North Stars. Now, there were reports when he was traded that the former Montreal Canadiens right winger Bobby Russo, upon hearing the news that he was going to the Minnesota North Stars, 
He was alleged to have informed friends. He was through as a player. He was retiring and he would not report. Well, Bobby told Minnesota newspapers this week that that wasn't true at all. Bobby says the trade has given him a new lease on life. Bobby said he never actually did say he would retire and reports that effect were just simply erroneous. Uh, Russo is very anxious to report to the North Stars and cites the acquisitions by the team of Canadians Ted Harris and Jude Druin as reasons for optimism in Minnesota for the upcoming season. The Los Angeles Kings announced the signing of three players whom they consider critical to the success of the team this season. They are defenseman Matt Ravlich, who has come back wonderfully from that badly broken leg from a couple years ago, and forwards Butch Goring and Bill Cowboy Flett, both very popular members of the club, and Los Angeles fans will be happy to hear that those guys are back in the fold. Here's a story that... uh, I just have to put it out here that happened to me while I was doing my research this week. Going through the various newspapers that I go through, uh, I came across a story, uh, actually in a couple papers, where the headline said, C-A-H-A won't deal with W-H-A plan. That's right. The W-H-A in 1970, well, immediately I said to myself, What the heck is this? I had never heard or seen any reference to the World Hockey Association as early as 1970. And I wondered how in all the uh, studying I've done in this time period, I could have missed this scoop and how every other newspaper or hockey uh, publication had missed this as well. Well, there was a ready explanation for this. That, of course, was provided by reading the entire story. It seems that an organization branding itself the Western Canada Hockey Association, or WHA for short, had established itself to become the voice of senior hockey in Western Canada. The Canadian Amateur Hockey Association President Earl Dawson said that if various leagues in Western Canada would sanction the group, his organization might meet with them to discuss issues surrounding senior hockey in the western part of the country. The WHA president, Paul Bozak of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, said that the organization was put together to provide development for amateur players while looking after employment, educational, and trade opportunities for players who wish to play senior hockey in Canada. So... After uh, a false alarm that jumped off the page at me, we find out it wasn't that WHA. As we've uh, mentioned over the course of the season and during this offseason, we did a series of interviews over the winter with some hockey people. And one of the fellows that we had extensive talks was my good friend, Ed Chadwick. Now, Ed was a Maple Leafs goalie before Johnny Bauer came to the team in the 1958-59 season. In fact, Ed and Johnny firmed what was really the first two-man goalie system that was used on a season-long basis that year as they alternated games between the pipes for the Leafs. He is 
the last Toronto netminder to play every game in a National Hockey League season, actually playing in all 70 games in each of the 1956-57 and 57-58 seasons. And that's a record which still stands in Toronto, 140 consecutive games in goal for the Maple Leafs. After he left the National Hockey League, uh, after playing briefly with Boston, Ed continued a very successful American Hockey League career, ending up with the Buffalo Bisons in the 1967-68 season. He then moved into the scouting and coaching ranks, eventually earning five Stanley Cup rings with the Edmonton Oilers powerhouse teams of the 1980s as an amateur scout and goalkeeping coach for the Oilers. Ed was actually one of the very first goalie coaches specializing in teaching goaltenders in the National Hockey League, if not the very first at all. All this recent talk about uh, latter-day goalie coaches like Mitch Korn and others, all very fine men, being inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame shouldn't be had without considering the guy who started coaching netminders, Ed Chadwick. Uh, Ed was given the task in the very early days of the New York Islanders of turning a couple of youngsters into regular NHL goalkeepers. Those youngsters were Billy Smith and Glenn Resch, of later starred with the Islanders. Both of those players have said they owe much of their National Hockey League success to Ed Chadwick getting them off on the right foot very early in their playing days. Other National Hockey League netminders who have benefited from Ed's tutelage were Bob Sophie and Don Edwards when they were rookies with the Buffalo Sabres and, of course, Grant Fuhr and Andy Moog of the Edmonton Oilers. Ed still lives in Fort Erie, Ontario, in a lovely home overlooking the Niagara River, and we sat on his back deck looking at the river, talking about his days in hockey and some of his great memories that he has. We'll have some excerpts from Ed over the summer, and uh, today we have one part of our conversations, and it has to deal with uh, Ed's memories of hockey at the very earliest stages uh, of his life, actually. It's actually quite a story, for Ed is the unlikeliest of young Canadian boys to forge a career in hockey, especially as he was growing up in the uh, late 1930s and the 1940s. Ed, you see was born with a severe foot deformity, commonly referred to in those days as a club foot. And as an infant, he actually wore a, a very uh, strange-looking metal brace, uh, really a, co- a complicated apparatus on the foot. He was able to walk or, or run at all like other kids, but that didn't stop him from eventually playing hockey. He had an aunt who raised him, and she took him walking every day to the extent where finally he was able to discard the brace. Uh, We'll talk about Ed in his early days as a player right up until the time he was called up to his first games as a Maple Leaf and in other uh, episodes we'll talk about Ed's first game with the Leafs and his time in the blue and white. Here's Ed Chadwick on his start in hockey. Okay, way back then, I think I listened to every game of Boston Hewitt did. Mm-hmm. Like it all. And then, of course, born in Ontario, I thought, well, maybe, you know, 
if Ontario boys like to play with the Maple Leafs, Quebec boys like to play with Quebec Montreal. And the thing is there too is that me sitting there looking at my foot at the same time, like, you know, no, no way I was going to make it like, because of my club foot. Now, how old were you when this all started? I was, well, my club foot, I was dumb as a little baby, of course. I could only last about four or five years. And then uh, I was with my cousin Earl, a picture we have. Mm-hmm. I could own my, my, my first Maple Leaf sweater on and that. So I was probably six, five, six, seven, like that. And, mm-hmm. and then to listen to, I didn't know anything about hockey. I listened to Foster here with my dad. My dad didn't know anything about hockey either, but my older brother would say a little bit about, oh, this about this, this and that, and this and that. But uh, the thing is, so I always thought then, like, you know, it got to be really nice, but I don't think I ever had a shot to do anything. But it changed. What it changed? changed? Well, it changed because all of a sudden my, my foot was, was was always a little smaller than my other one as far as size, size-wise. And uh, so... You know, it it just changed overnight when Mr. Morris knocked at the door. Like, you know, I told you before that I never skated to about 11 years of age mm-hmm. and just go to the rink on the H. Miller High School in uh, Caledonia and Rogers Road, outdoor rink. And, and get, I don't know how many bruises I would have. I could fall and hit the board, fall and hit the board day in, day out. <coughs> so basically... And then all of a sudden along came this Mr. Morris, knocked on our door sort of thing, and that's where my dad had a goalkeeper, and my dad, she was kind of funny, didn't know, my dad didn't understand. So I did play goal, but I played goal on the road with the boys. The road hockey game. Yeah, because I couldn't uh, run very good. And uh, so he just said, I just told him, I said, I don't skate very good yet, and because he said, can you stand up on him? I said, yeah, I can stand up on him. That's, that's okay with me. Would you like to try? So I asked my dad. My dad said, what's well, up to you? So I said, yeah, okay, I'll try. And that's how I got into the game of hockey. So you just loved it from the first time you got well, on the Well, basically, ice? yeah. After I got into it, I could then it. Then I, then I understand what was, a little bit what it's all about. I could mm-hmm. own, and still, like... I remember playing bantam hockey outdoor rink and freezing, freezing like hell. I could also, and there'd be a little, little uh, place with a little hot stove thing in it to warm mm-hmm. up a bit. But then after that, it just went from from uh, bantam to midget to to junior B to junior A, just like that. So this first team you played for, what was the name of that team? Uh, the Bon Boyd. The Bon Boyd Bantams? Yeah, Bantams. So yeah. that was a Bantam team. And Harry Sinden played on that team. Harry Sinden was a teammate. Yeah. Oh my God. That's really. Uh... Thank you, though. And uh, so just from there, then I went to play midget hockey with uh, Mills and Hedwin. That was an mm-hmm. uh, automobile up on Young Street somewhere. I supported that. And then I kind of played something with. Uh, I don't know if you, anybody remember the old Clancy League. Uh-huh. Like the King old, Clancy Hockey League? Yeah. Yeah. And I played a little bit in and out, and out with that. And then after after the my uh, two years of midget, I ended up playing junior being with, uh, with the Marlies and, and Weston. And how did you end up on that team? Did you go trial <laughs> well, for it? No, I think that because of... 
basically, it gets quicker. You got to stay at that time. I was almost connected with the Leafs because the Leafs had the right to everybody in a, what do they call it, 50-mile rows. Oh, the, right, the yeah. Crow flies, mm-hmm. Like it all sort of thing. And so I just went, went there and ended up uh, there. And and uh, we opened a new rink in Weston at the time. And when I went to Weston Collegiate, well, how to get the Leafs used to, Leafs used to practice there. I oh, got caught I sneaking out of class, going down to watch the Leafs practice. You got caught. Oh, yeah. I got a little trouble with that, but uh, it just all of a sudden was in my blood, so I think I want to be whatever I could be. And that's next thing you know, I went for Junior A. I went to Marley's training camp at Junior A, and then there was, well, I don't know how many of you guys, Don Head and Lockhart, and a bunch of guys mm-hmm. were there. And then the goalkeeper at St. Mike's, who I can't remember his name, but he decided not to play, and I was traded from from the Marlies to St. Mike's, which is a Toronto Maple Leaf team, too. They were both Maple yes. Leaf teams. Now, did you sign a C form? Yeah, I'll tell you how that happened. I was living in Kansas, Ontario, and I think I was probably 16, 17, or somewhere around that age. And the Leafs sent up to uh, Bobby Davison and... Uh, Jackie Hamilton to the, the house. They were former players. Yeah, but they were working for the Leafs at the time mm-hmm. too. So I showed up my at the house of the Keswick, and they sat down, talked to my dad and my mom, and said that I can always like to sign it to a C form. Well, my dad said, "What's a C form? A C form is that you you sign the C form, and and then you are kind of protected by the Leafs, this sort of thing." And then uh, nobody else can t- can claim you. So they signed me. Like they threw they threw a hundred dollars on the table with my dad's one dollar bills. I can remember that. A hundred one dollar bills. Uh, my dad had to with a million bucks. There, <laughs> you know, and so he used to sign. I was underage, so he signed it and everything else. And they also explained how much it would make with the first year in the National League and all and, that. And what did they tell you but, you'd make? Do you remember? Well, way back. I think the first year I played in Toronto was pretty somewhere around six thousand plus seven thousand. Mm-hmm. I'm not uh, that'd be a big guess. I know the first year I played in Winnipeg, my first year pro was around thirty four hundred twenty five thirty five. But the thing with the found out later because of the C forms, somebody was given the Toronto Maple Leafs forty eight hours or so many hours to sign me, or they could have. They want the rights to they, they can they can get the rights. And it was Chicago, I hear. I could all. How did you hear that? Well, just through the great bride sort of thing. I always came back. Always kind of things come back to you, I could all. Mm-hmm. And I, I find out. I said, "Well, what? So why? What did they sign me so darn fast? I was a kid. I could all. How did they know I was going to be there? Mm-hmm. Oh no, God! I didn't know myself what I was going to be. And but they knew I had something, and they didn't want to lose me. So they, that's what they did." That was Ed Chadwick with his very early experiences with hockey. Now, next week, we'll have a little more uh, from Ed. We'll be talking about uh, his first uh, pro experiences, and probably we'll get into his very first games with the Maple Leafs when he was called up to replace an injured Harry Lumley. So that's our show for this week, everyone. 
Uh, we did have some news, and we had a really nice uh, chat with one of the best guys in hockey, one of the nicest men you'll ever meet in any field, Ed Chadwick. So what did we learn from this show? Well, we learned that Jerry Seltzer, who was bidding against Charlie Finley for the Oakland Seals, really didn't have any chance at all at getting the Seals. It was a done deal to get the team to Finley right from the get-go. Uh, we learned about a new uh, goal judge system from Vancouver sports columnist Jim Kearney, uh, who actually had a demonstration, and the system looked like it might work pretty well. And we had, of course, all the player news from this week, including some news about Buffalo Sabres goalkeeper Roger Crozier, and we hoping we were hoping that his health was going to hold up for the upcoming season. Now, next time around, we'll, uh, of course, in addition to the talk with Ed Chadwick, we'll learn a little bit more about the future of National Hockey League president Clarence Campbell. Could Clarence be considering retirement? We'll find out. We'll find out about Johnny Bauer and George Armstrong, two uh, legends of the Toronto Maple Leafs back in 1970. They journeyed all the way to Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories and uh, related some of the experiences they had in Canada's far north. And we'll learn that the National Hockey League released its 1970-71 schedule and teams were busy announcing the dates of their home openers. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we can't thank him enough for all the hard work he puts into this. Uh, We couldn't do this without Andy, and he is really quite a a wizard at putting together these podcasts. Our uh, intro and exit music comes from the Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, and once they get back to live concerts, you've got to see them play. Uh, They've just started practicing again in the last week in person and they're sounding as good as ever other musical pieces and sound effects in the podcast are uh, coming from andy cole as well our research comes from the toronto star the toronto globe and mail and of course the many publications found at newspapers.com you can find us on twitter at at hockey 50 years and on facebook under 50 years ago in hockey We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, and of course, uh, you can get us through your favorite podcast, and now we're even on YouTube. Don't forget to give a listen to the popular podcast, The Council of Council of Dads, which is hosted by Andy Cole as well. This is a humorous look at the popular NBC TV show, Council of Dads, where each week Andy and co-host Cole Osborne delve into the issues surrounding the storylines of the show. Well, that's it for us this week, everyone. Thanks once again for tuning in. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the-